You're listening to On Human Rights, where we talk to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law. We're broadcasting from the Rao Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Today we have a special interview from the Swedish Human Rights Forum in Malmö, Sweden in November. This is with Alice Wadstrom from the Rao Wallenberg Institute, interviewing Jude Dibia, a novelist from Nigeria. Hello, Jude Divya. It's very nice to meet you. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. We are at the Swedish Forum for Human Rights, and you will be doing a seminar later today. What is the topic of the seminar? Okay, um, I will be doing the seminar today. I will be talking with, um, I'll be in conversation rather, with another guest writer in an, another city of, um, uh, of Sweden, and um, he's also in the ICON program, like I am. And um, we'll be talking about human rights in our country and um, what brought us here to Sweden, what kind of radical writings and literature are we doing. That and what is this radical writing <laughs> that you're doing? Because you are, you are a writer of yeah. several novels. Well, most people would consider my writing about um, same-sex relationships and the actuality that they do exist in, in my country as radical. I don't think it's radical. I think it's just common sense. Yeah. I see. And uh, what makes it complicated to to uh, work uh, to to write about these topics in in Nigeria? Well, first off, we have a law that was instituted in 2014 that actually targeted same-sex marriage. You know, they, they call it the Same-Sex Marriage Act. But what that law does is to attack people of same-sex um, relationships, LGBTI people in all forms, and 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 people that try to assist them as well. So it's um, we've created in my country a very dangerous atmosphere for people who are LGBTI and people who want to help them. Even when LGBTI characters started to appear in um, in our film industry and all of that, these characters were portrayed as ne- very negative characters. The archetype characters they would portray is either a pedophile or somebody that believes in um, juju or fetishes and, and stuff like that. And these are the narratives that are fed into the people's psyche. So it gets to a point that, yeah, people tend to believe after a while that it's true, these people are evil, we should attack them. And um, I needed to change that. I, I felt, I, I know I'm not the only one that's doing that, but my own level, I just felt that we need to switch this around and tell a real narrative of people and how they suffer within the society. So I was really drawn to that, and I was drawn to the fact that um, we were at a very, very dangerous you know, stage of our own human development whereby we're targeting people who didn't have any kind of power. And so for me, telling those stories became important, also trying to dispute the fact that gay people don't exist. It was so it was like challenging the government. You say they don't exist, but here are their stories. These are people and this is what your policies are doing to them. Yeah. But can, can you write these books in, in Nigeria? Can you challenge the government? What happens when you do that? Um, my first novel was written 11 years ago. Funny you know, as it seems. At the time, what, we didn't really have a law that targeted, per se, gay people. But we did have a law that we inherited from the Brits that was called the anti-sodomy laws. And um, so that made it a bit challenging. But the fact that um, LGBTI or homosexuality was never named in any kind of bill made it easier to write about these topics then and so I, I you know I wrote the book it was difficult to publish it was difficult to even circulate or distribute 
But I think with time um, and word of mouth, people will start talking about the novel and it became a success. Everybody wanted to read what was this thing about this novel. Um, after 2014, when the law was actually put in place to prohibit same-sex uh, marriages, so it was called, but if you read into the law, it was a law that was just targeting LGBTI people or people of same-sex um, relationships. It became a bit much more you know, difficult to exist or to to write and to live in that kind of society, especially when you are openly um, identified as an LGBTI person. Um, so for me, it was, um, I mean, before it was a bit easier. Now I think it's more people are getting bolder because you can go online and create a persona that doesn't exist and tell stories, you know. But for people that can't hide, I can't hide anymore because I'm already a well-known writer, um, it becomes actually much more difficult to, to survive in the society, yeah. And what is the difference between being a writer in Sweden writing about these issues and, and back in Nigeria? Well, in Europe and Sweden, I guess you've evolved to the point where same-sex relationship and marriages are more or less um, protected by your laws. Um, I, I do understand that there are some beggars out there that will still attack LGBTI people, but you still have the law to protect you. So if you are attacked based on sexuality or discriminated against based on sexuality, you can always take that up and you'll be listened to. I think that's the, the huge difference. I, I'm not going to doubt that. I mean, I've heard stories from young people here in Sweden of being discriminated upon or even attacked covertly because of their sexuality. But at the same time, it's not such. It's not something that's done so outrightly. People would do it, but I'm sure they're also aware that, oh my God, if I get caught, I'm going to be thrown in jail. There'll be consequences. Mm. And are there, yeah. will there be consequences in Nigeria? There are no consequences. Um, I use an example of... Um, I have a short story online as well where a mob um, beats up, almost kills a young guy that's identified as a gay person in front of a police station. And the police would look away. And these are... Stories not based on fiction per se. I have seen these things happen. I've heard about these things happen. There are no consequences. As long as you're identified as being part of this group, you know, then they would like, okay, after all, we don't care about them. So no consequences means... And when I tell people about Nigeria and the dangers of, of um, being LGBT in Nigeria, it's not so even so much as the police. Because I would say, if you're well-educated and you can speak well, I mean... You can always defend yourself when you get to the police station and say, you know, you have to show me where the law says this, 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 and that, and that. My worries has always been mob actions, whereby nobody stops them. Um, a few days ago, I was on social media reading stories, and um, I, I came across this horrific story of um, a boy seven years old who was burnt in the middle of a, a market square because he stole something to eat. Seven years old. There were adults there, there were parents there, there were mothers and there were fathers watching this happen. Imagine if somebody shouts in the middle of a market, he's gay, he's homosexual. Those are the kind of fears that worry me. It's not so much as what the law says, because sometimes the law just turns away a blind eye. Mm. It's what the people are capable of doing. And I think with this new law, it has empowered people to even become much more outright with their homophobia and their you know, hate and all of that. Yeah. I see. Yeah. But Jules, it's also interesting that you mentioned that if you are well educated and you can express yourself, you yeah. can defend yourself better yes. in relation to the authorities. Yeah. So yeah. if you don't have that, then you would be not only well, vulnerable to... You're very vulnerable. Yeah. If you I, I think sometimes, um, 
I've talked my way out of a whole lot of situations and based on my own knowledge of the law. And so sometimes I would challenge outrightly, like, you know, if, if I'm stopped or queried by police based on something so silly, I, I would like, excuse me, where, where exactly did you read that in the law? If you're the police, you should be able to tell me which part of the law that comes from. And if they threaten me, with, we'll take you to the station. I'm like, let's go, because I would like to talk to your boss, you know. So when you show that kind of... Um, bravado or whatever, they kind of like back up because they, th- they think, oh, this person probably knows somebody or at least he knows his rights. Mm. So there's a difference there. But imagine people who are not... Um, I come from a country that had dictatorship up to the year 2000, uh, up to the year 1999. So we are still a bit shell-shocked from the era of living under the military rule and dictatorship and also people are naturally scared. And what that has done to the, the country during that period that we had um, our military dictators, because we had quite a number of them, was it gave the, the police, the military, anybody that has to do with um, law enforcement, it gave them a sense of entitlement which we have not been able to shake up till today, in spite of the democracy that we, we say we practice. So the policeman feels he's above the law, and he feels that he's above every other citizen in the country. Same goes for the, poli- um, the army, the, the par- paramilitaries, and all of that. So we need to shake off that whole idea that they are lesser people and that a grade of people, because you wear a uniform, makes you, you know, higher than the others in, in, in society, which is something we're still battling, yeah. What is needed, basically, to improve the situation for uh, LGBTI or LGBTQ persons in, in Nigeria? Education. Mm-hmm. We need to educate ourselves on what, what is right. We need to go back to history uh, and, and read, you know, the effect of trying to target a small group of people only. We, we've seen what happened that during um, the Jewish Holocaust. We saw what happened during the Nigerian Civil War and all of that. This is all history telling us all this can happen all over again. Yet, I come from a country that wants throughout history from our curriculum. And of recent, history is not, no longer regarded as a compulsory subject. So I think the government understands, you know, the, the power of, of literature, the power of history, and at the same time, they try to quell that. So what happens to a generation of people that have no sense of history? So for me, I think what we need to start doing is educating people on what's happened in the past, educating people on what human rights actually means, educating people on the fact that um, you shouldn't be threatened by other people's sexuality, even if you don't agree with it, even if you're not part of that. Um, growing up, I had tons of friends who were Muslim. I'm Christian. I'm Catholic. Um, my parents never discouraged me from having you know, friends from another um, religion or whatever. And that's, that's what we, we need to encourage that. We need to encourage discussions and conversations across the aisle, not just between ourselves that, oh, I'm comfortable because you come from my tribe, so I should stick to you and hate every other person. So it's all about education, and I think that's, that would go a long way in sensitizing people and also you know, resolving some of the issues that we have. Yeah. Thank you, Jujibia. That was Alice Wadstrom from the Rao Wallenberg Institute interviewing Jude Dibia, a novelist from Nigeria. On Human Rights is broadcast from the Rao Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Loon, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll be back soon with more talking to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law.